Halloween 1974, Deer Park, Texas. 30-year-old Ronald Clark O'Brien and friend Jimmy Bates will take their kids trick-or-treating. Later that night, little eight-year-old Timmy O'Brien would be rushed to hospital and die. This is a story of the Candyman, or the man who killed Halloween. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a pumpkin and pull up a broomstick. This is True Crime Island Halloween Edition. I'd like to thank Lisa and Siobhan for suggesting this story. Both of them selected the same one, funny enough. Now, when I was a kid, we didn't have Halloween. In fact, it's a fairly recent thing in Australia. I don't even know if we really do the trick-or-treating thing now or if we just use the night to get dressed up and drink. We used to have uh, firecracker night. But I do know that the trick-or-treating thing is big in the US of A. But it goes even further back to the 16th century where in Ireland and Britain people would get dressed up and go door to door asking to asking for food. I mean, they go, oh, top of the day to you, ma'am. And uh, they, could you spare a treat for a poor common man and my three children? And the reply would be, oh, take these turnip treats and be gone with you, or something like that. Anyway, for our Scottish listeners, and there are a few, along with the Irish, you call trick-or-treating, Guising. And in some Scottish places, it's called Galishans. Or, I don't know, I can't do a Scottish accent. I'll try. Uh, Galishans. But tonight, I want to tell you the story of the candy man, or as others would call him, the man who killed Halloween. This guy, his name was Ronald Clark O'Brien. He was born on October 19. 1944. He was married to Danine with two children, Timothy, born in 1966, and Elizabeth, born two years later. He worked as an optician at Texas State Optical Company. And funny enough, he was also a deacon at the local Baptist church where he sang in the choir. In 1974, the O'Brien family were in quite a difficult financial situation. They were, they were behind in several loans and had been forced to sell their home just to get by. By all reports, Ronald O'Brien was about $100,000 in debt and that's in 1974 dollars. Now that works out to be around half a million dollars in today's term. So it's not a small amount by any stretch of the imagination. His friends and workmates were well aware of his financial problems, so it looks like he was not shy or embarrassed in letting everyone know about his private business. This openness, as you'll find out later, will not help him at all. But let's not get too far ahead just yet. Okay, so it's October the 31st, 1974. The O'Brien family, 
they visit the Bates family and they've had dinner together. They'd planned to take their children trick-or-treating, so after dinner, Ronald O'Brien, with his two children, Timothy and Elizabeth, along with Jimmy Bates and one of his two children, Mark, they set off through the neighbourhood, knocking on doors and doing the trick-or-treat thing. As they approached the house of the Melvins, the lights were out, but the children knocked on the door anyway. No one answered, so the party, all of them, walked off towards the next house. Now, for those who don't understand Halloween, or at least the way it's practiced in most of the US, people who have treats to give will either leave a light on, and when their door is knocked, they'll come to the door and give a treat, or they'll leave a basket of treats out the front for the kids to take as they please. I mean... Yeah, leaving them out for the kids to take as they please would not work today, I am sure. Anyway, let's get back to the story. They've just gone up to the Melvin's front door, which doesn't have a welcoming light, and no one answered, so they make their way to the next house, except for Ronald O'Brien. He falls back a little, but soon rejoins uh, Jimmy and the three kids. In his hand, he's waving several 22-inch pixie sticks in the air, claiming that rich neighbours were handing out expensive treats. Okay, for those of you that don't know what a pixie stick is, they are long plastic straws filled with powdered candy. Look, it's weird for me to keep saying candy, and I will be keeping on saying candy, but in Australia, we say lollies, and this powdered stuff would be called sherbet. Anyway, in this variety, the tubes are 22 inches long, or about 55 centimetres. So they're huge. Okay, where are we? Okay, uh, Ronald catches up to the group, and he's got these pixie sticks, which he offers to hang on to until they get back. Eventually, with the bags full of lollies, I mean, candy and and it starts drizzling rain, the group decide to go back to the Bates house. Ronald, he hands out the pixie sticks he's been holding, one to each of his children, Timmy and Elizabeth, and one each to the Bates children, Mark and Kim. He gives out a fifth one to a kid that knocks on the door. Now, Mark Bates immediately goes to open and eat one of the pixie sticks. But Ronald jumps up and stops him, saying, oh, you'll make a mess of the carpet. Eat it the next day. Danine O'Brien tells Ronald to take, take the kids home as she's going to visit a friend and will meet them back at the house later. Now, I have no idea who she's going to meet this late at night, but we can all think, I don't know, maybe she's having an affair, I don't know. Anyway, it hasn't too much to do with it, but mm, when you find out more about Ronald, maybe it makes a bit more sense. Anyway, let's go on. On arrival back home, Ronald tells Timmy that he can eat one piece of candy before bedtime. Now, I don't know about you, but these kids seem awfully restrained. Here they have a stack of candy, 
and they haven't eaten any of it yet. What's going on? Ronald hints that Timmy should try the pixie sticks. Now, maybe hints isn't a strong enough word, but insists maybe that's too strong. I'll go with he urges Timmy to try the pixie sticks. So, Timmy opens up the pixie sticks and finds that the powder does not flow out of the tube. So nothing's coming out. Ronald grabs it off him, and he just rolls it between the palms of his hands to loosen the powder. Timmy gulps down the powder, but then he complains that it's bitter. So Ronald pours him some Kool-Aid, and Timmy goes to bed. Within minutes, Timmy is screaming in agony, and runs to the bathroom where he starts spewing up. Ronald calls an ambulance as Timmy goes into convulsions on the floor. An hour after Timmy arrives at the hospital, he's dead. Now, the next morning, the news of Timmy's death goes viral, as viral as things would be in 1974. Concerned parents of the Pasadena area collect up all the candy their kids have received the night before and they take them into police stations fearing it was laced with poison. At this stage, Ronald O'Brien, he was not suspected of foul play until the autopsy of Timmy was complete. However, one doctor did sniff Timmy's breath and noticed the smell of bitter almonds. And true crime islanders, we all know what that means. Cyanide. The autopsy, that confirmed that Timmy had died from ingesting potassium cyanide. The amount Timmy consumed was enough to kill two adults. So there's plenty in there. Now, The investigators knew what candy had been laced with poison. They tested the other four pixie sticks that were collected from the other kids and found that they had been opened and stapled shut. They also contained lethal doses of potassium cyanide. In fact, they contained even more, enough to kill three or four adults. They found the one given to the boy that knocked on Bates' door late that night had almost been opened, but the boy could not undo the staple that had been used to reseal it. He was found sleeping with it still in his hand. I mean, wow, you've got to imagine how close to death that kid was. And as a kid you probably wouldn't appreciate how close you came to being poisoned to death, but I'm sure as you got older, it would probably start to sink in. Anyway, let's let's keep going. So, we have five pixie sticks that are laced with potassium cyanide and no other type of candy is found to be affected. All of these pixie sticks came from the same source. So, investigators questioned Ronald about the, about the night before 
and where he got the pixie sticks from. At first, he told police that he couldn't remember the house that gave him the candy. I mean, this didn't add up, because that night, it had started to rain. And so Ronald, Jimmy Bates and the three children, they only walked around two streets. The police knew this. So they take Ronald around the streets that were visited Halloween night to help jog his memory. But he still couldn't remember which house gave him the pixie sticks. I mean, yeah, right. So Ronald, he held onto the claim that all he could remember was that someone at a darkened home who only opened the door a few inches had handed him the five pixie sticks. He also said the arm was hairy. Well, police did a door knock of all these houses in the street that Ronald, Jimmy and the kids visited that night and found that none of them had given out pixie sticks at all. I think they pretty much thought this all along as there's much cheaper candy to give out than pixie sticks and that only five were handed in to police and all of them from the same group. With more questioning, Ronald finally remembered where he got the pixie sticks from. Now remember the house that had no outside light on but the kids knocked on the door anyway? Well, Ronald told police that he remembered that that house as the one that gave him the candy and that it was Courtney Melvin that did it. Now, you can see where this is going. Well, police checked out Courtney Melvin and found that he had been on afternoon this that night as an air traffic controller at Hobby Airport. He had over 200 people that could back up his alibi. Wrong call, Ronnie. Well, Jimmy Bates started to have doubts about Ronald at the funeral for little Timmy. He noticed as Ronald passed the open casket of his son on the way to talk to the organ player, he did not stop or even look down on the body. Friends and relatives would later state that Ronald talked to him at the funeral about the insurance money and how he was going to spend it. I mean, this isn't the sort of thing a grieving parent is going to talk about at the funeral of their son who's been poisoned only a couple of days ago. Anyway, let's keep going. Police start to investigate the people closest to the dead person, as they do. So, they look into Ronald a little bit more closely, and then he becomes their prime suspect. They find that Ronald was more than $100,000 in debt and had recently sold the family home to try and service these debts. When they had a look at his work history, they found that he had held 21 jobs over 10 years and he was suspected of theft at his current workplace, Texas State Optical, 
and was likely to be fired. 21 jobs, hey, in 10 years. I mean, how do these people survive in the real world? Investigators find that his car was also about to be repossessed and he was not paying several bank loans. They also find out that in January 1974, that's nine months before Halloween, Ronald took out two life insurance policies on both his children. Now these were for $10,000 each. In September 1974, only a month before Halloween, he took out additional life insurance policies of $20,000 each on his two children, even though the insurance company said, hey, this is just not a good idea. So this totaled $60,000. They found that the life insurance policies on Ronald and his wife were actually very minimal. So this is starting to look a bit sus. Why have huge life insurance policies on your children rather than yourselves? I mean, you'd need it on yourself just in case you died. Something, some, There'd be some money to look after the kids and the other spouse. Anyway, let's keep going on. To add to all this life insurance bullshit on his kids... Ronald called the life insurance company the morning after Timmy's death to inquire about collecting on those policies. I mean, fuck sake, some people are stupid. This is electric chair stupid. Why the fuck do you call the insurance company hours after your kid dies? You should be at home with the rest of the family grieving. At least looking like you are. Danine, Ronald's wife, she didn't even know these policies existed, but we'll find out about that later. When investigators questioned Ronald's workmates, they found that not only did he talk freely about his financial troubles at work, but but he had told them that he expected to come into some big money soon and was planning a holiday. They also mention how he had a strange, sudden interest in cyanide. Ronald also quizzed one of his customers, a chemist, about poisons. He seemed particularly curious about potassium cyanide and asked where it could be purchased. Look, you can't make this shit up. Anyway... They found that Ronald had called another acquaintance who worked for a chemical company and asked him questions about cyanide and what constituted a lethal dose. This was a whole year before. This was in the summer of 1973. This is a long time before this happened. Anyway, let's keep going. Investigators. They later searched Ronald's home where they found a pocket knife of his with traces of plastic and powdered candy stuck to the blade. This matched the pixie sticks. So, you can see that not only is Ronald a prime suspect, 
but it looks like he may have been planning this for a very, very long time. Investigators would learn that Ronald had attempted to buy cyanide at a Houston chemical company, but the smallest amount he could get was five pounds, or two kilograms. He left without purchasing anything. But I mean, you know, it's not like you wouldn't forget this guy coming in to just buy cyanide. So, you have to hand it to the police. This is 1974, and all this investigating has to be done by phone calls and legwork. On November the 5th, 1974, Ronald Clark O'Brien was arrested and charged with one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. Of course, he pleaded not guilty. In fact, during interviews, he would deny he had anything to do with lacing the pixie sticks with cyanide at all. Frustrated investigators tried to break him down and would seem to almost get there, but then nothing. One of the detectives, Bill Lanaya, said of being confronted with the growing evidence against him that O'Brien never confessed. He came close. I got him right to the line. An interrogation typically goes through stages. First there's denial. Then you can see the subject give up. With O'Brien, I saw that give up. We'd been in the interview room for a while and he slumped and started nodding his head. He's like agreeing with me. I said, now's the time to tell me. And he nodded some more. So I waited a couple of minutes. When he didn't say anything, I said, Ronald, tell me. And he said, tell you what? And the moment was gone. He never got there. Regardless, come the 5th of May 1975, they tried, uh, Ronald's trial commenced and he entered a not guilty plea. His defence blamed the poison pixie sticks on some unknown, untraceable boogeyman. Sick en- someone sick enough to use the cover of Halloween to murder unsuspecting children. During the trial, the acquaintance that worked in the chemical company, he testified that Ronald had asked him about cyanide. The chemical supply salesman testified about Ronald trying to buy cyanide off him. Co-workers testified how Ronald showed an unusual interest in cyanide months before Halloween. Friends and relatives testified on how, how at Timmy's funeral, Ronald was telling him how he planned to go on a long holiday with the insurance money. Add to that the fact that Ronald purchased insurance policies and increased them for his children and only had minimal policies for him and his wife. His wife even testified testified against him, saying she had no idea about the insurance policies on the children. Also, it was Ronald 
that gave the pixie sticks to the children in the first place. Also, the person that Ronald said he got the pixie sticks from had a cast iron alibi. So this does not look good. Okay. All of this is no real direct evidence that Ronald committed any crime at all. But then, when you add that his pocket knife had traces of plastic and powdered candy stuck to the blade, well, what do you reckon? Now, although investigators were never able to find out where Ronald O'Brien got the potassium cyanide to lace the pixie sticks from, they reckoned they had enough evidence for the jury to convict. There was some conflicting evidence at trial on whether or not Ronald showed any remorse at the hospital and at the funeral. So the jury had a bit of a hard time, but convict they did. On June 3, 1975, a jury took 46 minutes, that's only 46 minutes, to find Ronald O'Brien guilty of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. The jury also took 71 minutes to sentence him to death. Now, sometimes these things can drag on for days and days, if not weeks. Ronald was taken to death row at the Huntsville unit in Huntsville, Texas. Being a kitty killer, he had no friends. His wife divorced him soon after, and she remarried. He had the following execution dates. And as you know, there's so many appeals and stays and all that, so let's go through a few. The first one was August the 8th, 1980. Then May 25th, 1982. And October the 31st, 1982 which was exactly eight years after little Timmy died. But his luck would run out. On March the 31st, 1984, just after midnight, Ronald Clark O'Brien was given a lethal injection. Outside the prison, pro-death demonstrators chanted, trick or treat, trick or treat, while throwing candy at the anti-death penalty demonstrators. The candy man, the man who killed Halloween, was dead. Right up to the end, Ronald protested his innocence. His last statement read, and I'm only reading this to show what a fuckmonger he is, he said, What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death. Also, To anyone I have offended in any way during my 39 years, I pray and ask for your forgiveness, just as I forgive 
anyone who offended me in any way. And I pray and ask God's forgiveness for all of us respectively as human beings. To my loved ones, I extend my undying love. To those close to me, know in your hearts I love you one and all. God bless you and may God's best blessing be always yours. Ronald C. O'Brien P.S. During my time here, I've been treated well by all TDC personnel. P.S. I mean, wouldn't you just edit your last statement? You don't need a P.S. Anyway. So, my fellow islanders... This shit hoarder was only 29 when he killed his 8-year-old son and nearly killed four other kids. Why? Because he wanted to collect the money he stood to get from their life insurance policy. What shits me is that he was over $100,000 in debt and would have only received $60,000 in insurance at the best if both his kids had perished. This is still $40,000 or more short to cover his debts. But then he's still thinking of going on a long holiday and buying shit, even when he stood to collect only $30,000 for Timmy's death. So Timmy's death was not to clear his debt and be of some benefit to the family, It was just so he could go out and buy shit. Now what brought him down was the fact that he couldn't shut the fuck up. So many witnesses gave evidence that he was always talking about cyanide, some he tried to buy it from, and now he's in debt, but soon he'll have a load of money coming and he can go on a holiday. Then his kid gets poisoned by cyanide and there are huge insurance policies on his children, which he tries to collect hours after his kid dies. But then he denies he had anything to do with it. Wasn't me. At least once he knew he was a goner, he could have fessed up. Just a side note, in the time it took to execute him, the electric chair had been replaced by the lethal injection, so he's lucky he didn't get the chair. Now, although there's always a myth going around about Halloween treats being laced with drugs or poison, in reality, it doesn't happen. Think about it. Who's going to waste their drugs on little kids? So, that was the Candyman. Thanks, Lisa and Siobhan, for that. Email me your addresses and I'll send you out a Slasher t-shirt. Now, next on True Crime Island Halloween edition... A true story from Joe Varney. Now, Joe says, When I was in college, I lived with my boyfriend and a roommate who were musicians. We lived above a bar in a business building, not a house. It was a Sunday night, so the bar downstairs was closed and quiet. There was a door downstairs from the street, which we kept locked. Stairs went up to a hallway, one apartment on one side and another on the other. The apartment across from us 
was empty but open, and they had a black painted bathroom. Black. Very weird. One night, my roomies went to practice, and I stayed home working on a project in the front room. I distinctly heard the door open and them stomping up the stairs and voices. So I jumped up to greet them, surprised why they were back so soon. Opened the door and stuck my head out. No one was there. The hall was empty. When they got home later, I asked them was the door downstairs locked, as I wasn't going down there to look, and it was. That was super creepy. So, Joe, make sure to send me your address as well. I have a few t-shirts left, so I'll give a few more away in the future as well. They are all large white though. It is the slasher design I did in April, so it's not the new logo. Joe, look, I think there's a lot of creepy stuff like this goes on, and it's okay to say ghosts do or don't exist, but mobile phones didn't exist a hundred years ago either. I've had some creepy shit go down as well as I did post on Facebook this week, last week. I really like EVPs, which are the electronic voice phenomenon. Some of that is really, really interesting. Maybe it's just radio interference. I really don't know. So, that's about it for the Halloween special. Okay, there will be another Halloween special from some of your favourite podcasters. I've heard that Beck and Tyler from Minds of Madness have weaved their magic on it and it's supposed to be pretty amazing. I've contributed to it also, so I will be posting it on the website, so stay tuned. It'll be either tonight or tomorrow. So let's get to the Patreon shout-outs for this week. Thanks so much to Let's, Let's Talk Pods, Lara, Elizabeth G, Gary S., and they walk among us podcast. So go to the Let's Talk Pods Facebook page, which is just starting up. Now they're going to chat about all things podcast. It's a new group, so jump in now and have your say. Also, of course, they walk among us podcast. This is a great podcast by Benjamin and Rosanna. In fact, I'll be running a promo for them at the end of the show. I'll also update all the Facebook shout-outs next week. To become a patron of the island, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. And for as little as a dollar a month, you get commercial-free weekly episodes. All money goes back into the show to keep the island afloat. If you just want to donate on a one-off basis, then you can PayPal to the island at cambo at truecrimeisland.com But everyone gets commercial free episodes every week regardless so you can show your support for the island by just sharing or reviewing at the usual places it all does help The website is truecrimeisland.com where there's a button to get merch such as t-shirts and hoodies And also we've got Mugs of Rage to show your support for the island and look cool at the same time. Koozies or beer coolers and stickers can be purchased as well. Just email me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com. 
Of course, don't forget to find the island on Facebook. Just do a search for True Crime Island and join the closed group. You can join my Facebook, Cambo Ford, as well if you like. Twitter and Instagram, they're both at True Crime Island. Now, a special shout-out to Jeremy, Curtis and Belinda this week. Also to Karen Barnes. Guess what? Jeremy, Curtis and Belinda all know what I look like. (laughs) Jason, glad that the T-shirt arrived and they now ask you to pull up a deck chair at the pub. Well, that's about all for this Halloween edition. Don't forget to listen to the promos at the end. And if you haven't tried them, give them a go. It's They Walk Among Us, True Crime Storytime, and Baz Henderson's Extraordinary Stories Podcast. So, I'm your host, Cambo. Don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. They Walk Among Us is a podcast exploring the UK's most sinister and surreal crimes, including the woman who killed the boyfriend as he spent too much time on Facebook, to the teenage boys whose online relationship involves spies, sex, and the near-fatal stabbing of one of them. Subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. I'm Casey. And I'm Samantha. And we're the hosts of True Crime Storytime, a podcast for all things true crime. We will be bringing you fortnightly episodes covering everything from murder and mysteries, disappearances, theft and fraud, abductions and kidnappings, and more importantly, trying to take a lesson away from each case, because every story has a message. Hey, how are you? Do you like an extraordinary story? Do you like a Scottish accent? Well, you're going to love Extraordinary Stories podcast. Join me, Barry Henderson, as I walk you through some of the craziest stories you will ever hear. The stories I tell, they can be true crime, survival, sex, identity, obsession, love, and everything in between. They can be shocking, heartbreaking, funny, or dark. But they're always, always real. So, get yourself into Extraordinary Stories Podcast. Thanks.